0: Welcome to the Transfer Window, where after five days of the opening of the market in England, it's managers on the move and they're making the headlines rather than players. Today we're joined by transfer regular Duncan Castles, the man who always gets it right. And I'm delighted to say it's a Transfer Window debut today for one of Australia's up-and-coming football broad- broadcasters, Mr Max Gay. So, as you probably noticed, um, the Transfer Window has had a little bit of a shake-up itself. We must mention uh, Mr Johnny McFarlane who has decided for some reason at this most uh, busy time of the year to take a holiday. So you've got me, Ian McGarry, on a loan deal for the next two weeks to present. Now, as we said at the top of the show, it's um, been a big bit of uh, merry-go-round action for managers in the Premier League. And uh, this, we have just heard news today that Manuel Pellegrini has joined West Ham. But let's start first, Duncan, with the slightly surprising appointment of Unai Emery to Arsenal, given that, and I do find this remarkable and regular listeners will know that, I I think the appointment of managers should be based on the the fact that you know who's coming in. Arsenal interviewed or contacted 10 different people about the job before settling on Emery. What's your take, Duncan? Well, I think Arsenal
1: have have actually been uh, very thorough and sensible in the recruitment process. I think they wanted to they, they made a point of being seen to do that. So look across the whole market to see who was available, talk to as many candidates as possible. And they've talked to guys, um, like, for example, um, Jorge Sampaoli, the Argentina manager, who's not even been mentioned in the news at all. Um, Sarri was another candidate they talked to early in this process. So, you know, they, they haven't taken too long to do it, to be honest. Um, uh, since they they forced Fenger's dismissal. They've talked talk to a lot of candidates. I think they've allowed Mikel Arteta's name to run in the media. I think, I think there's a, a, an interesting dynamic there in that Arteta appears to have thought the job was his um, and was then... Uh, you saw individuals who were close to Arteta suggesting that the decision was his to make rather than the club's to make, that he knew he had the job and now he was now pushing the club control over transfers and a bigger budget for next season and he was worried about the quality of the players he'd have to work with since he wanted to do a Guardiola style um, system there and uh, and then apparently out of the blue Emery gets the job but uh, step back and look at the range of candidates that have Arsenal, Arsenal have, have, have interviewed during this process and Emery would be well up amongst those candidates and and also you know, I think we we had a long discussion on this the, the week after um, Wenger left. We talked about the the boxes that that um, Arsenal wanted to tick in terms of the new manager, and one was that they wanted a club man. They wanted to play attacking football. They wanted a, a manager who was um, relatively easy to work with, had a good personality, and who was used to working in a director of football system. You know, Emery is all of those. So. Um, I don't think this is this has come out of nowhere. I think Arsenal had to wait until emery's um uh sacking by Paris Saint germain was official, so that he got the payoff he um was expecting from paris saint germain and uh then they made the decision that that Emery was the best guy available to fit the profile of manager they wanted and prepared to work on the budget they wanted um and you know I, i've I've seen some quite dismissive stuff about him um, over the last twenty-four hours, but um, he won three consecutive Europa League titles in three and a half seasons with Sevilla, and that is a, a very impressive achievement for any manager in in football at the moment. And and if you were to tally up the the totals of Jurgen Klopp, and Mauricio Pochettino, who are sort of kind of the the favourites or the popular favourites in, in English football at the moment, aside from Guardiola, that's the same amount of major trophies as both of them have won in their entire managerial uh, careers combined. And, and that's excluding what Emery managed to add to that, five more trophies at Paris Saint-Germain. So not
0: perhaps not such a bad appointment it's being made out to be. Max, I think there's been a lot of um, response from Arsenal fans who were expecting... I, I agree with Duncan. I don't think uh, Unai Emery is by anything. He's not, not, not a big name. I think he's a very you know um, respected and very, very uh, uh, eligible candidate for Arsenal. But Can you understand Arsenal fans being underwhelmed when they were linked with people like Luis, Enrico, Luis Enrique and Carlo Ancelotti?
2: Um, at a time when, obviously, it's a, a huge amount of change at the club. Um, to be honest, I'd say um, I can understand it if you compare it to Carlo Ancelotti. I mean, Carlo Ancelotti is one of the most successful managers over recent years. I mean, the guy is, he is the manager who won La Decima for Real Madrid. But by contrast, I think Luis Enrique, I think he was he was very um, lucky in the fact he got MSN together and... I'm not sure of his credentials outside of having arguably the best front three ever assembled in the history of football, arguably, um, to work with. And if the uh, if the rumors are true about the um, salaries that he was purporting, I think he would be a bit underwhelming as well. Um, I think Unai Emery has been... a. I think he's quite an astute appointment, to be honest. I think from a... Um, from a point of view of getting the best out of your players, all you have to look at is his work with um, uh, Gregor Krachowiak when he was at Sevilla. I mean, you've got a player who's now been relegated with West Bromwich Albion, having been sent out on loan at PSG. Um, At Sevilla, he was a colossus in that defensive midfield role. And also working with uh, Kevin Gamero um, when he was uh, playing up front, especially, uh, I noted this in the Europa League final against Liverpool, he loves a striker who can run in behind the lines. And in Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, he's got one of the best at doing that. So I think whilst he's not the most high-profile manager um, compared to Ancelotti and Luis Enrique, as Duncan said, the guy won three Europa League trophies with Sevilla, which is an impressive achievement no matter who that's coming from. So, yeah, I think the... um, the tirade from Arsenal fans is possibly a little bit misplaced and I think Emery's going to do a good job to be honest
0: Duncan you've been um, very much on the cusp of um, transfer stories for the transfer window regarding players in and out of Paris Saint-Germain is there um, any prospect you think of uh, Emery taking any of his players we, we doubt Neymar will be coming so let's not go there but uh, he did have some favourites in the dressing room and other ones were enemies clearly do you think there's any chance of that? I think there is, and I think that
1: touches on an important point about Emery. Is anyone who's aware of what went on at Paris Saint-Germain will tell you that the biggest problem he had with that dressing room is his inability to deal with big egos and uh, and players who didn't respect his management. So, and you know, Neymar is the is the the central figure in that. I don't think that's going to be as much of an issue with the Arsenal dressing room. I think uh, you have to look very hard to find. Um, individuals of, of anything like that, that type in Arsenal's dressing room. If anything, they've probably got too many nice players in, in their squad at present. The one you could ask a question about is Aubameyang, um, who, who has a reput- reputation for being difficult at Borussia Dortmund, which you, you discussed um, several times before Arsenal signed him um, in January. But if you've only got one and you've got Sven Mislintat from Dortmund who, who brought Aubameyang to the club and, and sold that as the place um, for him to succeed um, and you are ready to make him the centre point of your attack, then that is probably um, a, a, a problem you can avoid. I think you will look at, at some of the players from Paris Saint-Germain. Um, I think it's clear that Paris Saint-Germain need to sell uh, and move off the wage bill but that may be the biggest problem for, for Arsenal um, bringing them in because they they clearly are, are making this an appointment with an eye to their budget. Um, you know, one of the reasons Luis Enrique was ruled out from the very start of this process was that he wanted a large budget to overhaul the squad. Arteta caused himself problems by asking um, for a lot of transfer budget to overhaul the squad. Um, and... Enrique also wanted a, wanted a big salary, um, which, which Arsenal were against. But fundamentally, I was told the problem with Enrique wasn't, wasn't that cash he was asking for. It was the, his, um, the way he held himself as a manager, the way he placed himself a, a, of an importance above the club and the players, as, he, as he'd done at Barcelona, as some of the executive staff at Arsenal were well aware of. And, um, and they didn't want that... Um, for, for their first manager post venger. And in Unai Emery, they've got kind of the opposite character as someone who will put the club first and, and put, put players, as long as they fit into um, the strategic shape of the team, ahead of himself
0: when he's making decisions for that club. Now, Max, I was told by um, someone very close to one of the candidates who was interviewed for the Arsenal job that the budget was £50 million or below for this summer because Wenger had effectively spent a family silver in recruiting over £100 million worth of two strikers in Lacazette and Aubameyang last season. and So effectively, whoever is in there does have his hand tied behind his back when competing with uh, the other top clubs in England with regards to his war chest, as we like to call it in the tabloids. Do you think it's possible for Emery to make Arsenal credible title challengers with such a small budget?
2: Um, if you'd asked me this before the Neymar transfer, I would have said yes. Um, you know, he his work at Sevilla, um, obviously with Monchi, definitely giving him a helping hand on that front, is very used to bringing in players for a relatively small amount of money and uh, building them up to great heights. But I think. In the post Neymar world, where Virgil van Dyke costs £75 million uh, and Danny Drinkwater costs £35 million, I I think you are still going to get some bargains. I mean, Andy Robertson for £8 million for Liverpool is an example. But to bring in the amount of players that, in my opinion, Arsenal need to really get their squad up to scratch, merely for a sustained top-four challenge, let alone a title challenge, I'm not sure 50 million is going to cut the mustard and I can imagine that would have put uh, Luis Enrique and uh, a couple of other candidates at um, the picture as uh, as Duncan and yourself were discussing.
0: Duncan, do you, I mean, do you think Emery's got the coaching ability? Because Arsenal do have a reasonable um, level of young talent who clearly need to be coached better. Need to uh, evolve into that first team. It's not quite the scenario that um, David Moyes found at Manchester United where it was effectively an ageing and almost broken squad of players who had just got over the line for a title for Sir Alex Ferguson. I think there's probably a bit more youth and talent in there, but has Emery got what it takes to bring it out of them and then, as I said, make a credible challenge for the title?
1: Well, Unai Emery was a strong candidate uh, to become Barcelona coach um, for a couple of stages of his career when he was in Spain. So Barcelona generally don't hire coaches who don't have that kind of technical ability. Um, he's, he's renowned for being tactically extremely astute. Um, the last Europa League final he won, um, which ironically was against Jurgen Klopp um, and Liverpool. Uh, a 3-1 victory from 1-0 down, he made a number of tactical changes in the second half of that match, which um, which turn, turned the game completely on its head and turned it from what was looking like a defeat into a comfortable victory. So he's got the, those basic credentials as a coach, um, you know, talking to people at Paris Saint-Germain who um, sort of, uh, were, were watching the collapse um and remember, Paris Saint-Germain did want to move him out last season to get a bigger name, Champions League-winning coach in. Um, but watching the collapse this season, it, it was the the key problem was with Neymar with handling the big egos. With Neymar saying, "I don't want to play this game. Um, I want to take the penalties. I want to take the free kicks." He, he was out of his depth in that area for sure. But coaching ability with the squad Arsenal have got, as you mentioned, I think Arsenal are very proud of as usual, of their academy ranks and they feel like they've got a number of players who are on the verge of establishing themselves as first-team regulars. I think he's well-suited to that. Um, no way do I see them mounting a title challenge. I don't think the squad's anywhere close to to, um, to Manchester City or even Manchester United. Um, I think Liverpool should finish ahead of them um, uh, this coming season if they recruit well in the summer, which we'd expect them to do. But it's, I think with Arsenal, it's more about um, improving things and, and modernising the, you know, they're trying to modernise the club from top to bottom and they want a coach to fit that pattern. They want, they want to be more adaptive on the field, um, which is certainly something Emery will bring them. And if they can get themselves back in the Champions League, that will be a key goal. And if they can add a, a trophy in amongst that, a League Cup or, a, or an FA Cup, I think that would be a successful season. And I do think Emery is capable of achieving that. Um, we don't know where Chelsea are going to be next season. Chelsea are are probably in a bigger mess than, than, um, than Arsenal at the moment. Ironic since they've just won the FA Cup, but really from top to bottom, huge, huge issues at that club. So, you know, getting into the top four, isn't impossible um, for them next season, and and I and I do think it's it's not a bad appointment. It's not, not the best appointment um, personally. I would have, I, I, as we talked in the transfer window before, I would have had Rui Faria up there as as a as a key candidate for that job. But I, I'd rather have an I M R than Mikel Arteta. That's
0: for sure. Well, um, Arsenal are not the only London club to be uh, changing their manager, and. Uh... I think we can quite rightly say, and, and it's very rarely we get the chance these day, days to, to use the phrase a shock swoop. But I think there's only, that's the, the only way we can describe West Ham United's move for Manuel Pellegrini. This is a man who's bucking the trend by turning his back on the millions of dollars of the um, cash rich Chinese Super League to come back to East London, would you believe, and manage a club which does look from the outside and from the inside, to be a bit of a mess. Pellegrini clearly has won four titles in four different countries. West Ham, when they got rid of David Moyes at the end of his contract, suggested, indeed promised their fans that it would be an inspirational and a signing which would they hoped uh, would unite what is a very difficult relationship at this moment in time between the fans and the board and owners. Max Pellegrini, do you think this is a good appointment for West Ham? Is it going to make a difference?
2: Uh, to be honest, I, th- I, I think like many of us, I did not see this appointment coming at all. Uh, I think he'll do a very good job, to be honest. Uh, so he's got a Premier League title behind him. He has, um, he's done very well in La Liga as well. He's got, he's got pedigree, and I don't understand why West Ham fans are having some sort of backlash about it. To be honest, he'll be able to bring in players that. Uh, West Ham were targeting earlier on so they were very heavily linked with Alexander Lacazette which was a very very unlikely signing but when you've worked with the players that Pellegrini has and you've got the trophy winning background that he has I don't see why he can't do a good job with West Ham to be honest.
0: Duncan Max makes a good point about Pellegrini's experience and the the, the fact that he should be able to attract a better standard of player to what is effectively, you know, a fairly mediocre club at this moment in time in the English Premier League. Again, is he the kind of I don't know, diplomatic soul who can perhaps assuage those very angry hammers fans and, and bring some kind of credibility back to uh, Messrs Golden Sullivan, the owners?
1: I think he is a diplomatic soul. I mean he he's a he's a well liked individual in football and he, he's got some uh, serious achievements on his on his CV. Um, I think assuring the West Ham United fans is really what all of this has been about. Um, we know that uh, David Sullivan lost faith in Slaven Bilic um, before the transfer window had even ended last summer and pulled the plug on spending. Then intending to keep it back for his next manager, he didn't really give that spending to David Moyes. Moyes did enough to keep them in the division. Um, and David Moyes was um, expecting to be retained as manager um, up until very close to the end of the season. And indeed, David Sullivan was telling people close to them that he expected to retain Moyes as manager too. Then they had a bad finish. Um, the pressure from the fans um, bit again on Sullivan and he decided he needed to make uh, a high-profile change to um, to get himself out of a hole, essentially. Um, uh, we know that last week, Paolo Fonseca um, met, um, met David Sullivan in his house to discuss the... There's a
0: lot of whistling there. It's uh, my helicopter landing in the back garden. Sorry, guys. Um, I'm, I'm somewhere <laughs> this afternoon, so uh, don't worry about that. I'll tell the pilot to keep it down. <laughs>
1: it's not Manuel Pellegrini coming to join the show, No.
0: Unfortunately not, but I'm sure we'll get more of in the <laughs> Sorry, Duncan, you were saying?
1: Yeah, I, I think the, the process there became one of uh, David Sullivan needing to make an appointment to, um, to keep the fans happy. And Fonseca was a candidate who was brought in to talk to him. Fonseca was not convinced that it was the right job for him and in the end uh, signed a a, a much improved uh, contract to Shakhtar Donetsk, I think uh, €8 million net over two seasons is what he'll be getting there, uh, having failed to get other jobs in the Premier League. Then um, Sullivan talked to Pellegrini and Benitez. Initially, the feeling was that Pellegrini was too expensive Um, in his salary demands. Um, And an offer was made to Benitez of £8 million a year for four seasons, uh, with Sullivan saying that Benitez was first choice, they wanted to appoint. Benitez used that to try and get more influence at Newcastle, I think wisely on his part, because at West Ham United, you can only see that going one way, regardless of what he achieved on the field. At a certain point, he'd hit a glass ceiling and the fans would complain about his style of football because West Ham fans always complain about the style of football. Um, and then, so that, so Benitez was out and they turned back to Pellegrini and gave him what uh, he wanted, um, which kind of tells you where they are. That, that that's, It's not a strong position in which David Sullivan is recruiting when he's offering big salaries to big names, getting turned down by a couple of of candidates, getting turned down first by probably the coach who had the the best credentials, and then eventually turning to Pellegrini at high cost. What will be interesting is to see to what extent Sullivan is prepared to back Pellegrini in the transfer market. Um, You always get the impression with David Sullivan that much of it is about um, making money for himself, out of the football club as the whole um, move to the Olympic stadium being a part of that and then balancing the need to keep fans on site, ticket revenue coming through the turnstiles with um, the amount he's prepared to invest in signings to actually fundamentally improve a squad, and it is one that needs a great deal of improvement as uh, the age profile isn't good, Um, there aren't too many Extremely talented players in there. They're, they're probably not punching much below their weight at present. So, so it's a it's a it's a fairly hard task that Pellegrini has been set.
0: So, Max, my dealings with um, Pellegrini have always been very amiable. I find him charming. I find him very knowledgeable about football. What I don't find him is someone who is essentially very charismatic in a second language. I.e., English. I don't find him to be someone who is very emotional or passionate most of the time. And I get the impression that one of the reasons West Ham fans loved Slavin Bilic was because he was those things. He might not have been the greatest manager, but he had the uh, ability, let's just say, the character to to get the fans wound up, et cetera, et cetera. Something which David Moyes probably didn't have. Do you think Pellegrini is one who can win over those West Ham fans or is it just going to be a case of, you know, suck it and see?
2: Uh, to be perfectly honest, I think what you're going to be looking for is his results, really. I think... His charisma will help him out of a ditch if results start to go badly for the Hammers. Uh, So, Jürgen Klopp in his first couple of seasons, for example, at Liverpool, um, uh, he he struggled at different points, but he's such a charismatic guy that he still kept the fans on side. But if Pellegrini uh, keeps the results going and he signs a couple of good players, I don't think the fact that he's not that charismatic in a second language will work against him and with his pedigree and hopefully uh, for the Hammers sake a couple of decent transfers uh, yeah I think he um, I think he'll be okay as long as uh, as long as results keep uh, keep the Hammers afloat
0: I remember uh, an interview which Billy um, Greeny gave Duncan you'll probably remember this as well before uh, Manchester City met Barcelona in the Champions League and he said that uh, his favourite player um, at Manchester City um was probably one of the least flair, um, if you like, and that was James Milner, and he said that this guy has cojones bigger than everyone else in the team, so uh, maybe maybe James Milner to the West Ham, who knows? That could be a that could be a possibility. Um, just floating that one, people. Just floating it. We have to um, conclude our London managership and cl- uh, club chat with a look at the club that Duncan um, referred to earlier in. The podcast as a well, I think I think I can probably f- summarise it as a complete shambles uh, from up to down um, and um, top to bottom. And uh, my information, Duncan, you may have heard the same is that this is now a situation between lawyers and and Chelsea's lawyers with Conti's payoff being agreed, whether or not it's going to be an ongoing salary while he's out of work or whether or not there's uh, a slightly smaller sum for the one year of his contract remaining paid. Uh, in a lump sum but once that's done then you know the new manager will be appointed <sighs> given this is a club that you know sacks a manager i think on average once every less than 18 months who's going to take it well i think they have to clear conti first
1: and that's the, the, the only reason he hasn't gone is they're trying desperately to avoid paying him that year's salary that's contained in his contract um, Chelsea, having been burnt so many times by their, you know, their, their biannual sacking of managers, eventually started writing clauses in contracts where they were only liable for one year's salary and only liable for that salary until uh, unless the, the, the coach they'd sacked um, didn't take a job elsewhere. So we're, we're and, 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 of,
0: and of course, Duncan, this is why um, the man who won the Champions League with Chelsea decided to play golf for three years, earning 40 grand a week, is that correct?
1: That is, um, yes, that's exactly right. Uh, <laughs> it's a good um, story. No, uh, uh, Robert, Roberto Di Matteo was was um, so upset with the way he'd been handled by Chelsea after winning the Champions League, that he um, used used the clause in his contract to the maximum and waited uh, for the right timing and the right opportunity to take a job. And, and that's it's pretty much the position Antonio Conte is in. I mean, I, I, I wrote this story, I think about a month ago now, that he had... Um, having seen that the options available to him um, at the top level, and this is a man who wants to win the Champions League. He wants a club where he, he feels he has a credible chance of winning the Champions League. And the big dispute with Chelsea has been, you're not providing me with the players to do what we both want, which is win the Champions League. So that he, he tried hard to get into the reckoning for Paris Saint-Germain. They weren't interested. Um, he had an option... Um, for the Italy job, but the conditions um, were, were nowhere near what he was prepared to take on to, to go back there um, and sacrifice um, the opportunity to win the Champions League for the next two years, obviously, if he becomes Italy's coach again. And and the anger with Chelsea is such that he's, he's quite prepared to let them fund a sabbatical for a year. Um, and this also, I think, plays into um, Chelsea making an appointment not just in the in the in the need of, in the hope that someone might uh, uh, get convinced Conte to take a job, or in the hope that they could negotiate a a smaller settlement on on his exit. Is if they were to appoint um, a manager now, and to say. Uh, for example, Luis Enrique, we have, we have given him the job. He's going to be our manager for next year. Then Conti's lawyers would say, well, that's constructive dismissal. Uh, that's £9 million, please. Thank you very much. Uh, there's no, no negotiation process anymore. Um, I, I, think, I think Luis Enrique is the favourite for that position. Um, and I can't tell you for for certain that he's got the job, but there are several indicators in the background, Uh, one being a reluctance, a refusal on his part to to meet with Paris Saint-Germain. When Paris Saint-Germain wanted to discuss um, having him in as a replacement for Unai Emery, Um, why do I think that's significant? Even if Luis Enrique had no interest in taking the Paris Saint-Germain job, if you're a manager on the market and you know other clubs um, are looking to hire you, then you should be wanting to um, talk to Barislan your mind because it increases your uh, your potential salary at your next club and your status. Um, it's it's fascinating. Um, I, I saw an interesting article this week who headlined revealed the inside story of how Antonio Quante's reign at Chelsea turned sour, which I found quite amusing given that. I think in the very first episode of the transfer window, we were talking about how the rain had gone sour and how he wouldn't um, survive beyond the end of the season. Um, he's, he's done well to get there. He, uh, for a long part of the season, he was expecting to be sacked and preparing himself for it. He's done very well to win the FA Cup on, on Saturday with a, a hyper-pragmatic um, set but he's got a group of players who you know, we, we know are not, not happy with the way they've been trained and not happy with what's going on at Chelsea. And uh, several of them ready to see him go, so ready to see him go that they're putting emojis on pictures of their, of their um, FA Cup final win to hide him out out of those images. Um, so he, he still managed to win um, the FA Cup against Jose Mourinho in, in those circumstances. So you've got to credit his, uh, his coaching abilities um, and look to see what
0: he does at the next club. Max, I think the um, as Duncan referred to, what the, the kind of uh, the Trojan horse or the uh, certainly not the dark horse in this case has to be Luis Enrique. The fact that he has been available now for a season, um, he's taking sabbatical, much like Pep did um, when he went and stayed in New York for a year before taking Bayern Munich. He is the big appointment waiting to happen. In your opinion, do you think that's got now to be Chelsea? Given that Arsenal has gone, West Ham's gone, even Stoke might have gone. And, uh, you know, they've not interviewed Luis Enrique for Stoke yet. So um, do you think Chelsea is, is now Enrique's only option? Uh,
2: well, to be honest, I'm sure he'll be absolutely devastated at, uh, at losing the opportunity to <laughs> manage such incredible players as Eric Peters at Stoke. Um, I'm sure that'll break his tiny heart. But uh, I think he's got to go for Chelsea. Um, I think the only possible... Other club off the top of my head that he could be looking at now that um, Dortmund have um, uh, brought in Fabra is maybe if uh, Mauricio Sari leaves Napoli, that could be his only other avenue. But to be honest, I think with the amount of vacancies that have come and gone since um, since Enrique left Barcelona, I can't really see um, his appointment at Chelsea being a huge success. I think he's a He's a manager who went into Barcelona. Obviously, I mean, you know, he won, he won a lot of trophies in Barcelona. You can't argue with his record when he was at Barcelona. But I just, I'm really not convinced of his ability to turn around a club that's in as much of a mess as Chelsea is. Particularly if Eden Hazard did um, pack up and leave and head off to Real Madrid, I'm really not sure how he as a manager would cope with that. But then again, he is a man with Champions League winning experience. So he could turn around and prove me completely wrong, assuming he gets a job.
0: It's going to be, um, I mean, we thought for the last couple of years, Duncan, um, were um, unusual, almost unique in the, the amount of um, managerial changes in, in, in top clubs. But actually, <laughs> the Premier League continues to entertain and surprise us. But um Somewhere where the manager won't be changing, but the but the uh, the background staff, uh, the coaching staff are changing. As Manchester United, you broke the story uh, about Rui Faria uh, leaving for um, Pastures New to spend time with his family and um, obviously to pursue his own career. Now, you've also broken the story of the structure uh, that Jose Mourinho is going to put in place for next season. Can you tell us a bit about the background to that and how that might um, work out for Manchester United in terms of the way that they set up and, the, and just generally the way that things will work for them next season? yeah look Jose Mourinho didn't want
1: to lose Rui Faria um, they've been such a successful managerial partnership 17 years 20 major trophies he knows the the man's qualities and it's uh it's going to be a very interesting season in many ways for Manchester United uh, you know a lot of recruitment work to be done um no trophies this year definitely a disappointing season um they finished second uh which is an improvement for sure and in you know, in many ways the, the team has got better but the pressure on Mourinho to perform next season is going to be immense. He not only has to make fundamental changes to the first team squad, he now has to overhaul a, a backroom staff um, which he never was planning to do and which will make um, which will put great additional pressure on him to perform next season, and I think what you'll see next season is a is a Mourinho even more focused than ever to prove that he can succeed at Manchester United um, by getting the squad into the position to win Premier to win to be challengers and win the Premier League title and to be proper ch- challengers for the Champions League, which has been the task up. I- for him from the start he's quite open about it when when the news of of uh, Faria's exit came out he was asked about it and um how would he replace him and he's and he said there is there is no one in world football capable of, of replacing Rui Faria nobody so um my strategy is going to be to um uh, look at Michael Carrick as being the potential assistant manager in a couple of years time once he's he's, he's um taken his pro license and had that experience of working in the backroom staff for a couple of seasons. But also I need a fitness coach to do the, um, the specialised physical training, all done with the ball in, in Mourinho and Faria's case. But um, Faria is very uh, technically accomplished in, in, uh, in terms of handling players' fitness, getting them fit and keeping them in condition through the season. So he's taken Stefano Rapetti, um, who worked with them at Internazionale in their their uh, famous treble uh, final season there, treble winning final season there. Um, so he will take his duties, and then he's uh, promoted um, Kieran McKenna, uh, the under eighteen um, coach, who's who won the um, under eighteen North uh, title this season, and has been. Um, praised, very popular appointment with Manchester United fans because he, of the football, attacking football he's had the, the youth team playing, he's got a good reputation amongst them, even to the point where where um, I, I see a lot of Manchester United fans suggesting that McKenna will will be able to convince Mourinho to uh, play a, a more attacking style. Um, I don't think that, it, that uh, the promotion of a under-18 coach is going to change Mourinho's thoughts about the game, but Um, McKenna is rated um, for his technical ability and he'll take an important part in running sessions and and helping organise the team. Um, The question mark I would have is whether there is enough of a voice um, to argue with Mourinho over decisions. That's something Rui Faria was prepared to do. Because they'd worked together for so long, they would have disagreements, they respected each other's opinions and and the results of those disagreements could be positive in terms of strategic selection. I think also um, there's an element of good cop, bad cop about um, the way they managed in that Mourinho would quite often be the disciplinarian. And Freya would be the man to put his arm around the shoulder of the players and explain that um, because just because Mourinho was giving them a hard time over a particular performance um, did not mean he didn't value them as a player and um, did not mean that they they were finished as United players and, and there wasn't a way back into the team and a, and a way um, to improve their performances. So I think they also worked well as a team that way um, and... Either Mourinho will have to change the way he handles players, um, which he's more than capable of doing because he's a, a supreme psychologist and man manager, or someone will have to take over those, that good good cop role, which could be Michael Carrick. It um, be interesting if he does, given that he's just been a part of the team and he might want to um, distance himself slightly from the players and that he's in coaching staff. But what's clear is it's a lot of changes. Um, a lot of changes in coaches and a lot of changes in players and um, a huge amount of expectation for next season.
0: Duncan, you remember when Jose Mourinho came back after winning his first title in his um, debut season at Chelsea? Uh, He came back for pre-season training in the summer of 2005 with his head shaved, Uh, shocked his players. Um, When uh, I asked him, "Uh, Jose, what's going on with your haircut? He said, this is my going-to-war haircut. If I if I don't show the players that I want to go to war to win the next title, how can I expect them to want to go to war to win the next title? Now, he's not won the title yet, Max, at Manchester United. I know you keep a close eye on all things in Manchester. If you were to tell me one player that Manchester United should buy this summer that will allow them to go to war for the Premier League title, who would that player be?
2: Oh, um. Under Jose Mourinho, I think, to be honest, I think their long purported target, Antoine Griezmann, would uh, be absolutely fantastic for them heading forward. I think Griezmann, he's such a versatile forward. He'd add that star quality that they that they do need, despite uh, shelling out uh, a ton of money on uh, Alexis Sanchez. I still think they need... Someone who's not only going to score 20 goals a season, but he's going to get the fans behind them. I know he's been very heavily with Barcelona, but this is a guy who has proved again and again and again that he is an absolutely top-class operator. He's versatile. He can work out wide. He can play up top as a lone striker. He can work behind uh, Romelu Lukaku, which is, I imagine, the role that he would end up taking. And yeah, I think he would be an absolutely brilliant signing for the Red Devils.
0: I love the way that Max uh, um, talks in that wonderful kind of, you know, Antipodean stroke, other continent way of the hammers and the red devils. I'm sure you'll all agree, those listening. Uh, <laughs> it brings a, brings a whole new aspect of the global uh, chat to the transfer window. Um, I'm going to move this on, guys, from Antoine Griezmann, uh, who scored two goals, of course, in the Atletico's uh, Europa League final win last week, to, of course, the only game in town especially if you're in Kiev this Saturday, which is the Champions League final, and uh, Liverpool attempting to halt Real Madrid's historic attempt to win three European Cups back-to-back in the Champions League era. I think we've uh, all heard and seen uh, some of the preview stuff this week already. Um, one of my uh, personal favourites was the question of Love Lovren, how do you stop Cristiano Ronaldo? to which he basically said, I have no idea. Um, Duncan, <laughs> if you were Liverpool defence, how would you stop Cristiano Ronaldo? I don't think, you,
1: I think Dejan Lovren's got it right. I don't think you do stop Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, and his record speaks to that in the Champions League. He scores almost every game he plays. Um, and I don't think that will be Jurgen Klopp's strategy either. I think he's been very clear um, throughout this Champions League campaign and you have to credit them for it is that we have our way of playing we have our strengths if we play well to our strengths we believe we can beat any team and uh, pretty much they have beaten every any any team the only one they didn't manage to beat in this Champions League campaign is Sevilla with the, the two draws in the group stages they've beaten every team that, it, that mattered um, and i i think they have the chance the opportunity to beat Real Madrid and win the Champions League, playing that way, um, do have the ability to unsettle teams with their. Um, it's been described as storming. Uh, so they they kind of pace themselves through games and then and and heavy press the opposition, win the ball, try and get it forward to Salah and co. as quickly as possible, score goals and, and, and score in bursts, which is what they've done throughout this tournament. And, and I don't see that Real Madrid are unsusceptible to that. I think they, they can certainly um, be damaged by that approach like any other team. Um, however, if Real Madrid play a more um, canny strategy and say, well, we know what Liverpool are going to do, we know what their strengths are, and we are going to set up to minimise uh, their strengths um, and make them come to us, uh, not give not give Salah and Co space in behind uh, to attack into, then I, you really would have to put your money on Real Madrid to win because they have the better players and they have the, um, the mentality of winning these kind of... Um, Trophies and these moments, and it's extremely important to the perception of the season that they win this trophy at this moment. Um, and they're, they're capable of scoring goals against ev- everyone. And um, I don't see—I certainly don't see Liverpool sh- shutting them out on the, on, the, on Saturday. If Liverpool to win, it will be by scoring more goals than Real Madrid. I would expect than rather than they stop Cristiano Ronaldo from scoring and Nick won themselves.
0: Now, Max. <sighs> How can I put this? I've heard it rumoured that you may have a slight leaning towards who you might call the Reds of Liverpool. Um, Given your um, fine analysis and forensic inspection of Jurgen Klopp's team this season, if you were Mr Klopp, what would you do to beat Real Madrid in Kiev this Saturday evening?
2: So, uh, is this in the same way that uh, Duncan Castles may have a slight leaning towards Jose Mourinho, according to, to the number Devils. of uh, Red fans? <laughs> towards the Red Devils, you might say.
0: I think, um, I think we can confirm that Duncan is tangerine over and over.
2: So I, th- I think Dun- we can all go forward on that. How do you beat Real Madrid? Come on, give us your tactical analysis. For a tactical analysis, uh, Duncan, I think you make a very good point that um, if Real Madrid are pragmatic and sit back and don't give Liverpool space to run into, I have to agree with you. I think Real Madrid would be heavy favourites. However, I think there are a couple of things stopping that. First of all, Real Madrid fans, as we all know, are um, they're a demanding a lot and they demand that Real Madrid not only win, but they win well. I think another point is that Real Madrid don't have that pacey counter-attack to the extent that they did, for example, when Carlo Ancelotti won La Decima. I think with midfielders like Toddy Cruz, and Luka Modric, they're much more based around having the ball, controlling the rhythm of the game, rather than hitting a team on the counter-attack and sitting deep. Um, If I were Jurgen Klopp, I would pretty much set up in the same way that he has been, 4-3-3 Four three three with Jordan Henderson sitting as a holding role, trying to dictate the play as much as he can with the limited amount of possession I imagine Liverpool will have. I think the biggest hole in Real Madrid's defence will be down the left-hand side, uh, where Marcelo, fantastic footballer as he is, his positional discipline is lacking somewhat on occasion. And Trent Alexander-Arnold's background as a central midfielder uh, has really come through in some of the fantastic crosses and long balls he's put through for, Mahal, for Mohamed Salah. And I think with Marcelo's tendency to bomb up the pitch and sometimes forget that he's a left-back, not a left-winger, uh, <laughs> I think that could be a position where Liverpool could really hurt uh, the Madridistas to keep the uh, to keep the <laughs> nicknames rolling.
0: Los Marenghi, uh, surely.
2: Los Marenghi. Uh, Oh, Los Marengue Madridista, You know, I, I, I can go, I can go between them, man. I really can.
1: I think Max makes a really good point that, um, and it, it's fascinating in that um, Madrid's, Madrid have the best fullback in the world, in my view, in, in Marcelo, um, possibly one of the best footballers in the world in Marcelo. Um, but he is in a, in his element attacking, and it, it's fascinating that the, that Madrid's best fullback comes up against. Liverpool's best player, and his tendency is to push up and uh, for, and leave space for exactly the player Jurgen Klopp would like space left for. So that that's
0: definitely something to watch on Saturday night as mm. well. Duncan, are you, are, Duncan are, you, are you inferring <laughs> perhaps there'll be a change of tactics from Zinedine Zidane for this game? For that reason? I... I,
1: I I think I think Zidane as and Madrid have shown themselves to be tactically flexible. I, I, he he's a manager who often changes his personnel and often changes his formation. Um, so three at the I, back, perhaps with Marcelo bombing on on the left. I don't I don't see that. Um, perhaps you've heard that that's a possibility for them. I would have thought they would have stuck with their stick with their their back four. Yeah. Um, but the, you know the the. The key thing there is to to get Marcelo to um, prioritise defensive duties because, for sure, if they don't allow Salah that space to to run into, he is um, half the sensational player he's been this season, and we've we've seen really good evidence of that. And uh, I suspect there will be um, there might be some messages being sent from uh, the Manchester United technical staff to the Real Madrid technical staff as to how they set up their team.
0: Duncan, what are you suggesting? Are you saying that Manchester United would aid Real Madrid in a potential defeat of a fellow English club like Liverpool? That is my suspicion. (laughs) 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 We all know Duncan's connections to Manchester United people, so you heard it here first. Um, Liverpool fans, address your letters of complaint to uh, Mr Ed Woodward. Old uh, Trafford. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and let's see where they get with that. Um, fascinating contest uh, on our horizon on Saturday evening, guys. I'm going to put you on the spot now because I want you to give me your prediction, including extra time or penalties. Duncan, we'll start with you. Uh, 3-1 Real Madrid in normal time.
2: And for you, Max? I'm going to say... 2-1 Liverpool after extra time.
0: OK, I'm I'm going for about 10-9 to either <laughs> team, given the way things have gone this season and a very entertaining evening it will be. Takes us seamlessly to our legendary quickfire round and for this, people, we are going to create a hybrid best-of team of the Champions League finalists. I'm going to give a position to Duncan and Max. They're going to tell me which player should fill that position from either team's first team. For the sake of argument, we're going to go with Jurgen Klopp's 4-3-3 formation to make it simple. I'm going to start with Duncan and ask you, Duncan, is there any other keeper at Liverpool that might make it into the squad, at uh, this team, other than the one that's Real Madrid? <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's, um, goalkeeper is probably one of the, the, the harder calls in this, this <laughs> selection.
0: We're, we're appreciating your sarcasm.
1: And I'm still going for Kehler Navas. Um, although he's obviously, obviously the guy that um, Real Madrid are targeting replacing in their squad and have done for several years, I would have
0: him ahead of any of the Liverpool goalkeepers. So, Max, just down to you. If you want to make a case for any of Liverpool goalkeepers, obviously you can include Bruce Grobler in this.
2: Age sixty-two. Am I allowed to? Um, am I allowed <laughs> to bring in Ray Clemens by any chance? You
0: might do. Yeah, if you if you want to. <laughs> If that increases the, the um, your ability to win the argument, then by all means.
2: Um, no, I I have to admit that I can't argue with that. I think Loris Karius, to be fair to him, has um, shown quite a lot of improvement uh, since he's been um, made the uh, continuous number one for Liverpool. But, uh, no, I can't argue with Duncan on that. Keylor Navas has got to be in the
0: team. Great. Well, I... Yes. Well, I'm sure you can argue with Duncan on other things. Um, Right back, Max, who would you have?
2: I think I'm going to argue with Duncan on this one, actually. Uh, I would say if Carvajal had been consistently fit, I would have him in. However, I am going to have to put in Trent Alexander-Arnold for this one. Uh, I think... For a, for a player of his age, he has shown incredible maturity. He's got pace going out the wing. He's got a fantastic cross on him, and let let us not forget, this is a player who pretty much over two legs kept Leroy Sané firmly in his back pocket. And I think on form, he's got to uh, he's got to go into the team ahead of a uh, possibly other fit, Danny Carvajal, Duncan.
1: Um, I, I like Alex, Alexander Arnold as a, as a young fullback. I feel um,
0: there's a buck coming here.
1: I think he's. I think he's come on a lot this season. Um, I agree with Max. He's a great attacking talent. Defensively, I I do not trust him at all. Um, I think he had a really really tough time in the the second leg against Roma, and I'm thinking Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, breaking off that wing against Alexander-Arnold and uh, seeing goals coming. So I would have the experience um, of Danny Carvajal in that position.
0: Okay, in this situation, it goes to the judge, which is me, to decide. And I am going to go with Duncan on this one. I'm going to say that Carvajal is the best bet defensively. But that's only because I think we've got some very um, contentious (laughs) positions coming up. Now, centre-backs... Max, you first.
2: Okay, so I'd say Sergio Ramos, without any shadow of a doubt, gets in the team. He is an aerial weapon, fantastic leader of the team. He does have disciplinary problems, which I think against a very quick and tricky Liverpool side could cause his side some issues. But he has been arguably the best centre-back in the world for a long, long time. So he gets in the team. And then it's it's a bit of a shootout between um, Rafael Varane and Virgil van Dijk for this one. But uh, as a man with the possibility of leaning towards the Reds, a touch and a man who has been so impressed with van Dijk and has noted that we don't really hear about his price tag anymore considering how well he's played since he's come to Liverpool. I think Liverpool would not have gotten to the final if Van Dyke had not come in in January, and for that reason, he is going to pair up with Sergio Ramos in my four-three-three.
0: That's a very fair point. I do like the fact, um, Max, that you point out. I don't. I agree with you. I don't think that Liverpool would have been anywhere near the final without Van Dyke and the team. So, Duncan, um, interesting to hear Max put Sergio Ramos and Van Dyke together. I'm kind of guessing that you'll go with Sergio Ramos, but who would be your partner for him?
1: Well, I think Max makes a very good point about Sergio Ramos from a disciplinary point of view. Um, and I think uh, you can kind of counter that by saying that the way UEFA have set up um, their big finals recently, they've been very tolerant in the refereeing. The, the, the guys have obviously been instructed not to send players off early in the game. So I think that will suit Sergio Ramos. And, and anyway, I agree with, with Max. Sergio Ramos is the obvious choice as one of those defenders. Liverpool have obviously got the most expensive defender in the world by transfer fee. I think if you gave any club in the Premier League um, the choice of signing Rafael Varane or um, uh, Virgil van Dijk, they would have taken Varane. I think he's the outstanding um, a younger central defender in uh, in world football at the moment. He ticks all the boxes for the kind of defender clubs want to sign. It's a guy who can defend, but is also very technically good on the ball and can build the play. Um, he's had multiple opportunities to go elsewhere. Everyone knows Madrid won't sell him. Um, so I would have um, Varan and Ramos together as the pair and a pair that are used to playing together and playing
0: well together. I'm very honoured and I'm surprised I'm being brought in again to be judged on this one. And uh, this time I'm going to rule in favour of um, our young Australian. I I would have Van Dijk, who I think has been outstanding. His form has been almost flawless. Um, And also he gives you the kind of goal threat, which Ramos gives for Real Madrid. So I would say um, Van Dijk. So, so far we have Navas, we have Carvajal, we have Ramos and Van Dijk left back. Gentlemen, do we have any disagreement about Marcello?
1: Only the only Ma- how
0: you pronounce his name. Sorry, Marcelo, <laughs> Brazilian. Marcelo. Sorry,
2: sorry, sorry, Duncan.
0: Um, so yes, I'm assuming we can go a quick yes on both of you guys.
2: Yeah, you can get a quick yes from me on that. I do love Andy Robertson, but even I'm not going to make that argument.
1: Yeah, Andy yeah. Robertson, great great player, great season. But as I said, Marcello is the best fullback
0: in the world. Okay, moving on to midfield, um, and we'll again try to keep it as quick fire as we can, people. But um, I say we're doing a 4 3 3 here, so left side of midfield for you, Duncan.
1: Uh, left side midfield, uh, like the, the midfield three, I think there's four Real Madrid players you could have in here. I don't think mm-hmm. a Liverpool player gets in, so you can have Tony Cruz or Isco or Modric on the left-hand side of your midfield or you can have them on the right-hand side of your midfield and then you have Casemiro as the holding midfielder and I don't think any Liverpool midfielder gets ahead of any of those four, never mind three.
2: Max, do you agree? Uh, I can't argue with that. I think um, I will stick up for Jordan Henderson here. He doesn't get in my team. However, I would say that um, in the games he has played in the Champions League, particularly against uh, Reimer in the first leg, where I thought he was outstanding. Um, I thought he was excellent. James Milner also with, I believe, the record for assists in, um, in a single Champions League campaign has done very well. However, if you were to ask me for, uh, for the best three midfielders out of these two teams, yeah, it's got to be Real Madrid. Um, uh, in terms of who I would stick on the left, probably Tony Kroos, I would say.
0: So we're agreed Kroos, Modric,
2: and Casemiro.
0: Duncan, Duncan says Casemiro. What about you, Max? Are you a Casemiro man?
2: Uh, I think if you press him, which uh, Liverpool will undoubtedly do, I think mean, he can be a little bit vulnerable... But, uh, yeah, as a holding midfielder, as we're playing Klopp's 4-3-3 uh, three, three with a six, I would have him over Jordan Henderson.
1: Yeah, he's, he's ideal for Klopp's
0: system, isn't he? The way he presses opponents. So we're agreed oh. so, that Casemiro plays um, holding defensive centre, Cruz left and Modric right. Is that correct? Yeah, that's it. Obviously, I'm not at liberty to intervene here, but anyone who knows the podcast well knows out of James Milner all over that park. On to the <laughs> front three. This probably the most contentious of all the, uh, the uh, set-ups in, the, in this combined Liverpool versus Real Madrid team. Chaps, Max, I'm going to ask you as a, um, a, a expert and professor indeed of Liverpool this season to name your right-sided attacking midfielder or sorry, attacking of the three.
2: Uh, well... I think this is going to be a, uh, it's a very tough choice, but I feel I'm going to have to go for the, uh, uh, for the Egyptian king himself, Mohammed Salah.
0: You know that Egyptian kings were actually called pharaohs, don't you? I'm getting a bit kind of annoyed by the amount of king, kings I'm hearing. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I've heard this, but uh, um, the Liverpool fan base, who are undoubtedly um, highly knowledgeable about uh, Egyptian royalty, are calling him the Egyptian king. So I, ha- I have to take their word for it. I feel
0: I think it just rhymes better in songs. But anyway. You know, <laughs> so I'm so therefore, Max, you've gone for the, the the wonderful Mo Salah, Duncan. What about you? I have no question
1: about that. Mo Salah has to be in in the that combined eleven, and and I think um, again, this is an indication of of how big a task Liverpool face, he's the only player in the Liverpool side I'd have in a combined eleven, And also, also the, only player, the only player that um, Madrid are interested in signing. Um, which
0: is oh, first he strikes to the head and then it's the, the low blow to the stomach. Unbelievable by Castles. But, no, but, but, that, but that,
1: that, is, that is a compliment to Liverpool. Um, well, they do have one player in the, the combined team. That's a very low-pull compliment. Compliment to Liverpool that they've got there and compliment to Jurgen
0: Klopp that he's managed to get them into this. You 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 heard heard it it here first, people. Duncan Castle has complimented Liverpool. Max, who would you have on the left side of that three-man attack?
2: I've got to say, that's one of the strangest compliments I've heard in quite some time. (laughs) Um, I have to say, I would have Sadio Mane on the left-hand side. I think Marco Asensio has done very well. Uh, The only reason that Ronaldo is not on that left-hand side, I'm going to defend myself here before I get the inevitable attack, is I would have him as the point striker in this formation. So I would have to have Sadio Mane on the left.
0: Interesting. Uh, And a rebuttal from you, Mr Castles, please?
1: I think if you were to give um, most managers the choice of uh, Sadio Mane, Marco Asensio or even Gareth Bale, who won't be playing, (laughs) <laughs> on uh, on Saturday, they would choose Asensio and Bale ahead of Sadio Mane. So uh, my choice would be Asensio for that position.
0: Controversial. So I'm assuming then, Duncan, that you're going for Ronaldo in the central striker position then?
1: Yes, and I'd also say that Sadio Mane, um, I don't think he's had the best of seasons. So Although his goal numbers are good, I, I think he's um, he hasn't responded particularly well to, to to Salah taking over as the shining light of that attack. Um, And I think he's the one who's under pressure um, when Liverpool look at uh, improving their attacking resources for next season.
0: So neither of you would consider shifting Roberto Firmino to left side then as a little bit of experimentation?
2: Not as a winger for me. Firmino is very good at that false nine position. And just a a little note from me, I do agree with you, Duncan, that uh, Sadio Mane's goal numbers are... Uh, while they're good he struggled a little bit I think particularly in the first half of the season but since Coutinho's left he started to drop a little bit deeper sometimes in attacks which I think has actually worked quite well for him and I would say that his poorer performances usually have come in the Premier League but I'd say mostly in the Champions League most notably um, against Roma in the second leg where he was by far our best player Um, On that front, I would say that uh, he gets in the team on the left for me for that, especially because he's had a lot more top flight um, and top level football experience than Asensio has had. Despite the fact, I would say Asensio is definitely going to develop into a better player than Sadio Mane.
0: Well, it's gone to the judge again, people. And um, I'm going to shock everyone by including Sadio Mane on the left side of this combined Liverpool Real Madrid team. Um, not going to be very um, popular with Mr Castles on that one, but I think Manny has got the pace, and he 's also got an eye for goal, which Duncan did refer to, um, where I think he might just sneak one this Saturday evening in Kiev. So that brings an end to our Champions League preview here on the transfer window. Um, if you want to continue the debate, then you can follow the guys on Twitter. Um, Duncan's at Duncan Castles, very sensible. I'm at GarboSJ, not sensible. Max, can you remind everyone what your Twitter handle is, please?
2: Uh, yes, I'm at, at MaxGay93, uh, slightly sensible. I like to think in the middle of the two.
0: I would say so, I would say so. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your contributions today. Um, absolutely insightful and entertaining as always. You can find the Transfer Window podcast on iTunes and Acast or your normal podcast provider. When you do, please like and rate us and that will make it easier for everyone else to join in the fun. That's it for this week, people. Um, I am Ian McGarry and I am on a two-week loan deal to um, present for uh, Johnny McFarlane. I shall see you next week on Tuesday where we will discuss the aftermath of said game in Kiev and hopefully the managers will have signed and we'll get some players. Until then... (laughs) Goodbye.